Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Donald Trump seemingly throws his support behind BLM? That is a phrase I never thought I'd say, but here we freaking are. The show starts now. So folks, though I am supporting Governor Ron DeSantis as our GOP 2024 presidential nominee, I still consider myself to be a Trump supporter. Hell, I was one of the original, the OG Trump supporters back before he won and back before it was cool to be one. You know, before social media, conservative grifters jumped on the Trump train to push merchandise and gain followers. But I have feared for a few months now that the Trump of 2016, hell, even the Trump of 2016 through 2022 has changed. And when I saw this truth social post from Trump yesterday, well, that kind of confirmed it for me. I'm proud to have BLM support. Come again, BLM like Black Lives Matter BLM, 2020 Summer of George Floyd, Mostly Peaceful BLM, the organization that is directly responsible for the demonization, demoralization, and even defunding of our police officers, BLM? How? Why? What? But as shocked as I was to see Trump praise BLM, I probably shouldn't be because this is a pattern for Donald Trump. Anyone, and I mean anyone who praises him, gets his attention and unfortunately, his respect, even if it's fleeting. Mark Fisher, a BLM leader, recently came out on Fox and Friends to praise Donald Trump, and that's all it took. Now, look, I agree with Fisher that Democrats don't care about black people. I got it, and I'm with you. But Fisher also pointed to very real improvements made in the black community during the Trump presidency. Again, agree. But is that enough for me to forgive BLM for what it did to our country, our cities, our communities, and our nation's law enforcement officers? Oh, hell no. Trump does not need to cozy up to BLM to advance the priorities of black Americans, or does he? Join me now with his take on it is Wrong Speak Publishing founder, Adam Coleman. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I want to get your thoughts on this uh, because, again, I think this was very conflicting for a lot of conservatives and Trump supporters. On one hand, we like to see black Americans saying that they see conservative accomplishments in the black community. That's always a positive. But when Trump says that he's happy to have BLM support, I don't know. I'm a little concerned about that. What are your thoughts? Well, for one, BLM was a white movement, to be honest with you. Um, while the faces of it at the very top, they were basically black Marxists, the core of the BLM movement was majority white people. Um, and, and while there were opportunists who were burning up cities and stuff like that, there were lots of white people as well. So when, when someone like Trump says uh, BLM support is equivalent to getting black support, it really isn't. Um, and he is not aware enough to understand that. Um, and to answer the question as far as why is Trump accept this this particular support after what we went through, and it's because Trump likes anyone who likes him, yeah. right? Even if it's for a moment. Um, I remember in, early in his presidency, he spent his entire campaign, his, his first campaign, talking about China, how bad they are, how terrible they are. 
Xi Jinping is horrible. And then he went to China. They rolled up the red carpet, treated him like royalty. And he said, you know, that guy's not so bad, right? So that is actually one of his biggest flaws. Um, he will cover for anybody who says anything nice about him, at least for a moment. Uh, but as soon as anybody criticizes him, fairly criticizes him, he turns his back. That's my concern as well. And if we look to the first Trump administration, obviously, I think it was a fantastic administration by and large. He did great things for the country, for all Americans. But there's no denying that he put people in really bad positions, really bad people in really bad positions. And then after the fact, when it blew up in his face, then he he took, you know, no time in criticizing those people. They're awful. They're horrible. But he put them in that position. So I fear now that a, a Trump 2024, uh, I, people say he's learned his lesson. He knows who to trust and who not to trust. But you're exactly right, Adam. If anybody says anything nice about him, then all of a sudden he's a fan. So I'm really concerned. And I'm wondering if the Trump zealots on social media, if they're seeing this, if they can acknowledge it, or are they just so up Trump's keister that they will refuse to criticize him even when it's well-deserved? Yeah, they're not going to criticize him, especially right now during the primary when they have a clean, a clear enemy like Ron DeSantis. Um, that is their number one target. And so even if Ron DeSantis is right, which, mind you, uh, for people who have a short memory, just about every single person that you see on social media criticizing Ron DeSantis, calling him uh, the establishment, calling him a rhino and all this stuff, were praising him less than a year ago. We're dying to move to Florida, if not move to Florida because of Ron DeSantis. So let's just keep that in mind. But now, because, like you said, zealotry, um, they see Donald Trump as their leader, and Donald Trump made him his number one adversary. And so, yes, they're going to excuse this. I've already seen the, the remixing of, well, Donald Trump really meant this, and he really meant that. But at the end of the day, this is Donald Trump's flaw. Right. And if China can figure this out, anybody else can figure this out. Um, anybody who wants to use Trump for whatever gains they want to make, they will do the same thing. And if it just takes one time on one TV show to say something nice to get a job like John Bolton, like what else? What else? Uh, you know, who else can do the similar type of thing? Very concerning. And a lot of the criticisms that people made during the Trump administration that he cozied up to Putin or, or whatever, you know, I dismissed those because, listen, I don't think he cozied up to Putin. I think that he said that he respected the strength of Putin. So I thought they were separate things. But this does bring up concerns for me. And it makes him a rich target for the left because he has an affinity for saying things like that that don't read well and don't play well. But you brought up Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. You know, by all accounts and all polls, Donald Trump is still well ahead of Ron DeSantis in the primary. Do you think, though, that Donald Trump is more concerned about Ron DeSantis than he and his team may be led on? Yeah, of course. I mean, I rarely hear, especially since the primary started, I rarely hear Trump talking about Democrats. I rarely hear Trump talking about Biden. Um, and if if anything, because I don't I don't hyper focus on what Trump says on a daily basis. He says a lot of things. But what really comes through, it seems that at the very least 50-50 um, shots taken at Ron DeSantis versus shots taken at Biden and Biden's administration. Um, so it's very, very clear that Ron DeSantis is his number one opponent. Um, and I think if Trump wants us to believe that he is not worried at all, then why is he talking about him so much? Right? Why are they going after him so much? Right. If you're 
not concerned about something, it doesn't even cross your mind. You don't even put up with it. Why does he go after Nikki Haley as much? Why does he go after uh, after Vivek? He, actually, I've never heard him say anything negative about Vivek. Or right? Nikki Haley, so, really. I mean, I really have yeah. not heard him say anything nasty about anyone, including Chris Christie, maybe here and there. But Chris Christie mm-hmm. is the most vocal against Donald Trump. And we really haven't even heard <laughs> Donald Trump go after Chris Christie, which tells me exactly what it told you. He is more concerned yeah. about the rise of Ron DeSantis. And I also believe that these polls right now that have Trump so far ahead especially in Iowa, I think that they are very misleading. So I think it remains to be seen. Tonight's going to be a big night for Ron DeSantis as well. I'm going to get your thoughts on that in a moment. But I also want to ask you about one of the biggest controversies, at least in pop culture, that's going on in the country right now. And that's what that deadspin sports writer, senior sports writer, did to that little nine-year-old boy who had his face painted half black, half red, something that a lot of sports fans of any age will do to show their support for the team. You know, I have yet to see it, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it'll happen. I have yet to see Deadspin come out and make any apologies. Do you think that they're happy that they just got the clicks out of this and they got the recognition from this? Or what do you think is beyond behind them not coming out and issuing at least a correction? Well, I mean, from a legal standpoint, I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I would imagine issuing an apology is an acknowledgement of a mistake. Um, and then that might open them up to litigation even more so than it already does. Um, but I I actually am not surprised by any of this stuff. Um, as a sports fan, I've been more and more turned off by sports journalism because sports journalism is basically political sports journalism. Um, it is very much so ideological. And they love the clicks and they love spreading their ideology and making people see things that aren't really there. And this is the perfect example of it. A child dressed like a Native American actually is Native American, right? right? But this person is so racist in such an ideologue that to him, this person who just looks white, right? This kid, and even more so, it's a child. This child, his target looks white. And so I must stretch my imagination to make this kid appear like David Duke. And that is actually what's really heinous about this ideology is that it doesn't take any prisoners. It doesn't care if you're a child, doesn't care if you're a baby, doesn't care if you're an old person, right? Feeble, strong, does not care. You are, uh, you're basically allowed to be smeared. You're basically allowed to be used as a pawn, a political pawn. And that's exactly what we saw here. And it's absolutely disgusting. And I think more and more rational people are realizing what sports journalism has turned into. Yeah, it's activism is what it really is. Um, I want to talk to you about some of the writings that you've done because I think that they're so interesting. One of the things and one of the reasons I I really wanted to have you on my show is because I saw a tweet from you. I believe it was a week or so ago. And you tweeted something about how you've been watching these videos on libs of TikTok of some of these they, them non-binary, fox gender, transgender people and their weird postings. And of course, you you said in your tweet that you watch them and and as much as you want to watch them with the volume on because sometimes they're comical, even if sad, you said that you watch them with the volume turned off and you learned something very interesting. Tell my audience what you learned by observing this. What I observed is that um, there's something deeper than what they're saying. You know, sometimes... And, and if you watch enough videos, people say the same type of stuff over and over. And it's because it's a script, right? Um, they're not true believers for a lot of these people. They're just repeating the thing that they're supposed to say that gains them attention. But what I see is sadness. I see loneliness. 
Um, and what I was trying to do was not necessarily just humanize them, but kind of understand who these people are, because I kind of do understand who these people are. I've been lonely, extremely lonely at periods in my life, and I know what that looks like. So when I see someone who appears lonely, um, I, I understand and I kind of have empathy for it. Uh, so when you see them, for example, uh, have the camera in their face, but they can't make eye contact with the camera, right? Um, they say things like how happy they are, but they can't make any sort of gesture with their face and the facial expressions that they're actually happy like a normal person would, right? They're just saying things, but their body is expressing uh, disappointment, hurt, loneliness, sadness. Um, it's in incredibly troubling when you watch their body language, when you watch their facial expressions, uh, because it generally doesn't match the rhetoric that they're saying. Do you think that there's a part of this fixation on LGBTQ pronoun culture that has to do with these especially young people um, wanting to belong to something? They feel like this community gives them a sense of purpose, a sense of identity. Do you think that that community is also preying on the vulnerability of these people that you say are lonely, maybe struggling with mental health, maybe have sexual abuse or harassment in their past? Do you think that that's part of this here, that these people, as much as we look at them and we maybe want to make fun of them because they act outrageously, that this is actually mm -hmm. much deeper psychological issues that these pe people are experiencing that's being manipulated by a community? Absolutely. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, because I've, I've gotten to know uh, some of these people maybe in real life and, and you know, from a distance. Um, and just in general, I noticed that anybody who talks about sex constantly generally isn't having sex. You know, <laughs> so if I'm describing someone who's incredibly lonely, who isolates themselves, but yet they're saying they're pansexual, they're not really having sex with anybody, though. Right. They're too socially awkward to be around anyone to have sex. Um, and I think that it tells you everything right there. They're just saying these things. They're saying these things to fit into a particular group that will accept them, even though they're socially awkward, even though they're maybe they're autistic, maybe mm -hmm. they don't fit in with a crowd, right? But they're just saying these things. Are they actually pansexual? Are they genderqueer? Putting on a, some clothes and, and saying that you're a woman now or you're a boy now, like that's easy, right? Saying that you'll have sex with anything and everything that walks because you're very open. Well, that to me is a sign of desperation. You have mm -hmm. no limitations. You have no boundaries, right? You'll say and do anything as long as someone loves you. And they like the attention that these social media videos get them, even if it is in part negative attention. It's really sad what's happening, especially with our nation's youth. I wonder what you think as well. Some of these people, the way that they dress, not just cross-dressing, but it seems like some of these people go out of their way to make themselves unattractive or at least unattractive by traditional standards. And I don't just mean, oh, a little less attractive. It seems like some of these individuals really go to extreme lengths to make themselves unattractive, whether it's multicolored hair, whether it's the way that they dress. It feels like maybe they lack self-confidence and they hate the way that they look. So they take it to an extreme to purposely look bad because mm -hmm. then maybe it takes away some of that spotlight on, on their insecurities. Do you think that that could be part of it? And if so, because we live in a social media generation, what would you tell these young people who are just desperately searching for some kind of validation? So to, to uh, highlight what you're saying, I completely agree. Um, 
I've seen it personally, even when I was growing up, you know, maybe back then it was dressing like a uh, goth or emo, but I would see people know what the, the norm is and try to fit into the norm. And when they can't fit into the norm, they say, screw it. I'm not only not fitting into the norm, I'm going to accept the abnormal and I'm going to double down on the abnormal. So that's when they go to the extreme. But it's it's like um, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because they don't fit in. They do even more things that make them not fit in. And then they get upset because they they still don't fit in, which, by the way, these people are desperate to fit in. Right. So it, there, there's envy, there's jealousy that still uh, resides in these people. Um what I would tell them is that all your problems can be fixed by you, right? There is no group that will uh, you know, solve everything. There is no group that will speak for you. Um, all your issues that you're facing are ultimately your problem. And if they're your problem, they're, the solution resides in you and you can, you can overcome them. And that's why I try to write about, I try to write about overcoming these obstacles, overcoming social anxiety, overcoming loneliness, depression, um, and if I didn't, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. So, I mean, I think there are people who are using them and that's, what's really unfortunate. Mm. So I'm, I'm empathetic to this, the certain ones that I know deserve some empathy. The ones who are malicious, I have no empathy for, they know exactly what they're doing and they're using these people. Right. Yeah. Manipulating. You mentioned your writings. Where can my audience go to read and hear more from you? Because you do a lot of great work and I think that you explore it into a different level than a lot of just the conservative talking points out there on social media. Where can my audience find you? Uh, for the most part on Substack, adambcoleman.substack.com. Um, I'm also a uh, columnist for Human Events and I you know, frequently write for the New York Post. So they can keep an eye out there. Well, I certainly appreciate the work that you've done. You're a great follow on Twitter, on X. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate our conversation, and I hope to have you back one of these days soon. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. All right. The United Nations wants you to cut back on your meat consumption to fight climate change. Before we just give a certain finger back at them, let me tell you more. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization, which is led by a Chinese Communist Party official, will release a plan next month that calls on the world's most developed nations to fight climate change by curbing their excessive appetite for meat. Will that directive apply to China? Well, likely not, because China is still deemed a developing country. Once again, the communists use environmental policy and the manipulation of stupid leftists in America to further their own agenda. My next guest is not only a fourth-generation dairy farmer, but also one of the foremost advocates for American farmers and ranchers, and I can't wait to hear what she thinks of this one. Stephanie Nash joins me now. So I know you're going to be fired up about this. Not that anybody really cares what the UN says, not that you and I care, and I don't think most Americans care, but this whole initiative to get people to eat less meat because of climate change, this isn't just a UN thing. I mean, this is an initiative that goes far beyond that. And I'm worried that this is going to catch on. But what do you say to the U.N. that says that rich countries should stop eating meat to save the planet? Well, first of all, the United States is not known for taking orders from other countries, right. let alone on agriculture, because not only are we leading in a lot of products that we are exporting to other countries, but we are also more sustainable than other countries. You look at not only the UN, but Singapore, you know, they're exporting up to 90%. And so all of these rich countries that are getting into fake meat, you know, it makes sense for them if they want to adopt that, but it's something that the United States should not adopt, nor should it be something that family farmers and ranchers should stay quiet on. Right. Well, this whole concept, though, of 
being vegan or eating fake meat to save the environment or that somehow livestock, they emit so much methane that it's, it's killing the ozone. I mean, that to me is such a stretch of the imagination, but there are a lot of people that are the environmentally crazed folks that really do believe and they buy into that narrative that somehow eating meat, livestock, farming, ranching is killing the environment. What do you tell those people? Unfortunately, media and marketing from these alternative products and the fake meat push to be vegan has been stronger in the last 10 years. You know, we're so far removed from the farm nowadays. There's more housing developments going up, the new farmers and ranchers coming in. There's more agendas for climate change friendly practices and people don't really understand the push that we have been doing for sustainability, for environmentally friendly here in the United States. You know, we're 1.4%. We're the lowest of any country in agriculture for emissions. We're doing a very good job, but for the vegan vegetarian lifestyle of, you know, we don't want to slaughter the animals or we don't want to, uh, you know, eat cows from a farm. That's a big push right now. And I think people need to realize, you know, what we are doing as family farmers and ranchers is bigger for our food supply, for our future than the fake meat will ever be. In the industry of farming and ranching, I know that you know this personally. I know this personally. My uncle still runs a family ranch in, in South Dakota. So this is something that hits home for me, and I know it hits home for you. But this push, this environmental push, the vegan push, whatever the push is, I think it also, beyond just impacting the bottom line, mentally, I think it's impacting our farmers and ranchers. I think just like our law enforcement officers, our military members, America's farmers and ranchers, they feel like they're being unfairly demonized. And unfortunately, the suicide rates for people in this industry, not just because of financial, but because they just feel not appreciated and not supported, it's a problem. Can you speak to that in some of the conversations that you've had in this industry? Yeah, so this is really close to my heart because in the last two years, agriculture has become the number one industry for mental illness. Farmers are not only losing their generational farms, but they're having to fight against, you know, topics like fake meat or climate change or having to get into regulatory programs mm -hmm. under the USDA or their state to adopt this. It's a, it's giving them no choice. So a lot of farmers are feeling hopeless. Um, they are not financially sustainable. They are fighting against consumer perception. And so it's really sad to see our industry not only fight against mental illness, but fight against people that could be helping them in a way, supporting agriculture, not supporting other products or this agenda to kill off agriculture. What do you think our country would look like if we didn't have American producers? What would that mean, not just for the farmers and ranchers themselves, but for the rest of the country? Because I don't think that they understand what that void would look like. So there's a lot going on in our country with agriculture. And I don't think the American people really do value the importance of what we grow here in the United States. There are many countries around the world that are dependent on us and a couple of other countries that are very strong in whether it's fruits and nuts or dairy products. I mean, we still produce all of the milk that Americans drink every day. That's pretty great for a country to do that. And so if we were to get rid of agriculture and the family farmers that are still fighting for a fair food security, it would be detrimental. Mm -hmm. You would see exports increasing even more than they are today because of the big corporations that are trying to make a cheap buck off the American people. You would see 
more land being taken up by China and other countries investing into our food because they are not sustainable in their countries mm -hmm. and they're looking for more, more opportunity. And ultimately, Americans would see a higher increase at the grocery store. You think it's high now, wait until we're making fake meat coming from Singapore into the United States. So there's a yeah. couple of trends that could happen that could be detrimental to the American food supply. I wanna talk about this as well because Americans, as you mentioned, going to the grocery store, everything's expensive. Eggs are expensive, milk's expensive, meat's expensive, you name it, it's expensive. There are a lot of Americans out there that see those price tags and they think farmers and ranchers are getting rich. They're making all this money, the prices are so inflated, somebody's gotta be taking home a gray bag to the bank because everything's so expensive. I know that's not the case, but can you help educate my viewers that feel like maybe they're getting ripped off and somebody in the family farm or ranch is benefiting off of that? So I tell people this all the time, you know, the Amazons and Walmarts are in this world have been here for a long time. So if they're going to get free shipping, uh, it's because they're shipping and producing a lot of product at a cheap price. The American people and the American family farmers and ranchers are bringing a stronger economy here. They're creating jobs and opportunity. But unfortunately, the big corporations and processors of this world under the USDA and under the Farm Bill, we have a paying structure. So we don't get to dictate our price of what goes to the processing plants or the meat packers. Mm -hmm. They tell us what we get paid. And unfortunately, like you said, we are not making a big buck. If anything, farmers and ranchers are truly struggling in this economy. And so I feel like the American people deserve to know, you know, farmers are, are not financially sustainable right now, but we are trying to fight to get a fair price, not only for them at the grocery store, but for us to have American grown food. To give credit where credit's due, on a couple different occasions, though he's kind of misstepped and got it wrong, Joe Biden has alluded to the meat processors and how they're undercutting the American farmer and rancher. He has mentioned that a couple of times, and I have to give him credit for that because I didn't hear Donald Trump talk about it a whole lot, something that I really tried to get in the forefront because that's something that's important to me as a, as a family member of those in the ranching community. But let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about what these meat processors, how they're undercutting and how they're using foreign products to undercut our American suppliers who can't differentiate their product. That's a big learning curve for people who have no idea where their food's coming from. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the conservative side really was not prepared to back agriculture at that time. They were very unprepared of what was happening in farm and ranching communities. And there's still a lot going on in Washington, D.C. on the federal level that is not positive for family farmers or ranchers. Uh, but when you talk about regulations, when you really want to get into policy, um, there's a lot of things that the American people don't know. The big thing right now is private landowner rights. You know, there there's great talk of how we can better supply financial sustainability to family farmers and ranchers if they are a meat processor. But there's a lot of talk going on about the government coming in and taking up land. And that's a fear for mm -hmm. me as a family farmer rancher. And on top of that, you have billions of dollars from Cargill to Tyson to Bill Gates that are being invested into this fake meat and not invested into the American agriculture economy. So that is very scary to see the power that they have over the influence of this agenda for climate change safe practices. But on the other hand, they are allowing our family farmers and ranchers to go out of business. I think older generations still want to eat meat and they still want to drink milk. I worry about the young people though. I worry because the climate change agenda is very seductive for young people. So I worry that they're gonna be caught at a young age and they're gonna be part of this, they're gonna be pawns in this bigger movement. That's the fear I have is for the future. It's not necessarily the right now, but it's five, 10 years from now. 
what this industry is going to look like and if we are going to have American farmers and ranchers left if the demand isn't there. But do you think when we've seen these fake meats that crop up, they haven't done well. Beyond Meat hasn't done well. The consumers don't want it, kind of like consumers don't want electric vehicles. So do you think it's going to take more of a mandate from the government to make this flip to more of this Beyond Meat and this fake meat kind of society? Yeah, so let me just start off by saying people that have not really looked into the fake meat, I'm gonna tell you how they produce it. It is from cells, from an animal, from a needle biopsy grown in a medium, eventually turned into this gelatin to look like meat. That is not appealing at all. What they are doing, in a way, is they are pulling at emotions. They are pulling that we're not gonna harvest these animals anymore, that we're gonna save the planet from climate change, and that's more scary to me than them actually being honest about the, what the product is. Because they're working around this marketing strategy of, oh, here we are, we're gonna be the best of America, and we're gonna have the best products to be sustainable and feed the world. That's not it. In the first year, they're gonna produce 400,000 pounds. Chicken alone is producing 43 million pounds a year. Beef mm -hmm. is producing seven, 27 billion pounds a year. They're not even close to what we as people need to eat on a daily basis, not only nutrition-wise, but what we need for the future of our food. And so I really am scared to know that they are using emotional tactics for the American consumer and the world to push this agenda of fake meat in our country. Let's talk about the nutrition as well. There are some people that eat plant-based um, because they think it's better for them. And for some people, what I don't know people's dietary needs or whatever, and for some people it, it might, maybe eating more plants might be better for them. I, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. But for those people who are eating the fake meat because they think that's better for them health-wise, what do you tell those people? Well, the stock market, uh, their numbers in the last two years have shown that people are being more aware of what they're putting in their bodies. Red 3 has come out, and I've said this before, um, you know, they have banned that through the FDA for cosmetics, but they're putting it as a food coloring in this fake meat. And that's really scary to see how that's going to affect us in the next 10, 15 years. It might not affect your body right away, but later on in life it might. And so when people are not being aware of where their food is coming from or they're getting statistics from the New York Times or people like Bill Gates, they're not being led correctly. They're being led mm -hmm. astray to believe that this is a better product for their body and it's going to save them because they're living this vegetarian and vegan lifestyle. But at the end of the day, there's nothing like a steak on your dinner table. There's nothing like a cold glass of milk coming from a family farm. And that's what we need to spread the word about is the truthful nutritional values of agriculture products. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think if people are armed with the correct information, I think that the consumer time and time again is going to choose, especially American farmers and ranchers who do it best. Where can my audience, and you've been on my show numerous times and I always appreciate it, it's one of my favorite segments by far, where can my audience find you to hear more about your ad advocacy, to get more educated on American farming and ranching? Yeah, so they can go to Stephanie Nash, No Farms, No Food, um, I'm all over the internet, whether it's my website or on social media. And something that I would like to express to people going into 2024 is I am creating more content traveling to family farmers and ranchers, hopefully That's the great. Netherlands as well. So if they really do want to understand the family farmer, hear the stories, hear what products we're making, they can check me out, probably moving into the springtime. 
That's amazing. Well, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for always coming and educating my audience. It's so important, so needed, and we don't talk about it enough in media. So I always appreciate you. Happy holidays. Have a fantastic time in Las Vegas for National Finals Rodeo, and I hope to see you real soon. Yeah, thanks, Tommy. All right. Our education secretary misquotes former President Reagan. It's a very Merry Christmas over at the White House. Well, except for the toppled Christmas tree and those missing stockings. And Joe jokes about blowing up the world. It's time for my final thoughts slash losers of the week. The Biden administration should be one giant parody account, but alas, it is not. From the VP of school buses and selfies to the suitcase-jacking former nuclear waste official Sam Brinton to Secretary Binder and chest-feeding Pete. They really employ a diverse team of morons over there at Camp Brandon. And that circus roster also includes Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, who, despite overseeing education in America, cannot get a simple yet iconic quote correct. Listen. You know... We're going to set up follow-up calls with every governor we met with to make sure we're available. Um, as uh, I think it was President Reagan said, we're from the government. We're here to help. So I don't need to tell you all this because unlike Miguel, I think you know. But for kicks and giggles, let me remind you that the actual line spoken by our great former president, Ronald Reagan, actually goes like this. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are... I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Yes, indeed, President Reagan. The government responsible for locking us down for months or even years on end due to a glorified cold. The government who masked and forced vaxxed children and adults alike is not a comforting thought, Miguel. And neither is the fact that our education secretary is a moron. But speaking of morons and misspeaking, I wish I could say our illustrious president was just attempting a joke here, but uh, alas, who really freaking knows anymore? Play it. This is Nick. Hey, Nick. This is uh, Nick. Hello, buddy. Now look, my my Marine carries that. It has a code to blow up the world. That doesn't. This is not nuclear weapons, is it? All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The world is on edge and could possibly be on the brink of World War III, and our president, God help us, is cracking a joke about blowing up the world. Comforting, but hey, he's from the government and he's uh here to help. But while Joe may blow up the world, one thing he will not do is acknowledge his seventh grandchild, Hunter's love child, Navy. After receiving well-deserved heat from leaving out their seventh grandchild from the stocking display last Christmas, family Biden decided to skirt the entire issue this year, not by just including her, but by eliminating the stocking display altogether. It wasn't until about six months ago that Joe was forced to recognize her existence, not because he wanted to, but because the optics were noticeably bad. But that acknowledgement was short-lived and a one-time-only one time type deal. Jill says her decorations represent magic, wonder, and joy, but apparently that doesn't extend to her granddaughter. Perhaps that bad karma is why, like our president, the tree outside of the White House fell down. You know, I couldn't think of a more Biden thing to happen, really. But Merry Christmas to all, and from Nashville, God bless and take care.